Chapter Thirty Eight of the Inevitable. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock. The Inevitable by Louis Capurus. Translated by Alexander Texiera de Matos. The Inevitable, Chapter 38. Gilio hated the village at Tura at San Stefano. Every morning he had to be up and dressed by six o'clock with Prince Ercoli, Urania, and the Marchesa to hear mass said by the chaplain in the private chapel of the castle. After that, he did not know what to do with his time. He had gone bicycling once or twice with Bob Hope, but the young far westerner had too much energy for him, like Bob's sister Urania. He flirted and argued a little with Cornelie, but secretly he was still offended and angry with himself and her. He remembered her first arrival that evening at the Plaza Rospoli, when she came and disturbed his rendezvous with Urania. And in the Camaria degli Sposi, she had for the second time been too much for him. He seethed with fury when he thought of it, and he hated her and swore by all his gods to be revenged. He cursed his own lack of resolution. He had been too weak to use violence or force, and there ought never to have been any need to resort to force. He was accustomed to quick surrender and he had to be told by her that dutch woman that his temperament did not respond to hers what was there about that woman what did she mean by it he was so unaccustomed to thinking he was such a thoughtless easy-going italian child of nature so accustomed to let his life run on according to his every whim and impulse that he hardly understood her though he suspected the meaning of her words hardly understood that reserve of hers why should she behave so to him this foreigner with her demoniacal new ideas who cared nothing about the world who would have nothing to do with marriage who lived with a painter as his mistress she had no religion and no morals he knew about religion and morals she belonged to the devil demoniacal was what she was didn't she know all about aunt lucia baloney's manoeuvres and hadn't aunt lucia warned him lately that she was a dangerous woman an uncanny woman a woman of the devil she was a witch why should she refuse hadn't he plainly seen her figure last night going through the courtyard in the moonlight beside van der Stahl's figure and hadn't he seen them opening the door that led to the terrace by the pergola and hadn't he waited an hour two hours without sleeping until he saw them come back and lock the door after them and why did she love only him that painter oh he hated him with all the blazing hatred of his jealousy he hated her for her exclusiveness for her disdain for all her jesting and flirting as though he were a buffoon a clown what was it that he asked a favour of love such as she granted her lover 
He was not asking for anything serious, any oath or lifelong tie. He asked for so little, just one hour of love. It was of no importance. He had never looked upon that as of much importance. And she, she refused it to him. No, he did not understand her. But what he did understand was that she disdained him. And he, he hated the pair of them. And yet he was enamored of her with all the violence of his thwarted passion. In the boredom of that villeggiatura to which his wife forced him in her new love for their ruined airy. His hatred and the thought of his revenge formed an occupation for his empty brains. Outwardly he was the same as usual and flirted with Cornelie, flirted even more than usual, to annoy van der Stahl. And when his cousin, the Countess de Rosavilla, his white cousin, the lady-in-waiting to the Queen, came to spend a few days with them he flirted with her too and tried to provoke cornelie's jealousy he failed in this however and consoled himself with the countess who made up to him for his disappointment she was no longer a young woman but represented the cold sculptured juno type with a rather foolish expression she had juno eyes protruding from their sockets she was a leader of fashion at the quinereal and in the white world and her reputation for gallantry was generally known she had never had a liaison with gelio that lasted for longer than an hour she had very simple ideas on love without much variety her light-hearted depravity amused gelio and flirting in the corners with his foot on hers under her skirt Giulio told her about Cornelie, about Duco, and about the adventure in the Camerera degli Sposi, and asked his cousin whether she understood. No, the Countess di Rosavella did not understand it any too well either. Temperament? Oh, yes, perhaps she, questa Cornelia, preferred fair men to dark. There were women who had a preference and Giulio laughed. It was so simple, la mori. There wasn't very much to be said about it. Cornelie was glad that Giulio had the countess to amuse him. She and Duco interested themselves in Urania's plans. Duco had long talks with the architect, and he was indignant and advised them not to rebuild so much in that undistinguished restoration manner. It was lacking in style, cost heaps of money, and spoiled everything. Urania was disconcerted, but Duco went on, interrupted the architect, advised him to build up only what was actually falling to pieces, and, so far as possible, to confine himself to underpinning, reinforcing, and preserving. And one morning Prince Ercole deigned to walk through the long rooms with Duco, Urania, and Cornelie. There was a great deal to be done, Duco considered, by merely repairing and artistically arranging what at present stood thoughtlessly huddled together. The curtains? asked Urania. Let them be, Duco considered. At the most new window curtains but the old red Venetian damask. Oh, let it be, let it be. 
It was so beautiful. Here and there it might be patched very carefully. He was horrified at Urania's notion, new curtains. And the old prince was enraptured, because in this way the restoration of San Stefano would cost thousands less and be more artistic. He regarded his daughter-in-law's money as his own and preferred it to her. He was enraptured. He took Duco with him to his library, showed him the old missals, the old family books and papers, charters and deeds of gifts, showed him his coins and medals. It was all out of order and neglected, first from lack of money and then from slighting indifference. But now Urania wanted to reorganize the family museum with the aid of experts from Rome, Florence and Bologna. The old prince's interest revived, now that there was money. And the experts came and stayed at the castle, and Duco spent whole mornings in their company. He enjoyed every moment of it. He lived in his enchantment of the past, no longer in the days of antiquity, but in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. The days were too short, and his love for San Stefano became such that one day an archivist took him for the young prince, for Prince Virgilio. At dinner that evening, Prince Ercole told the story, and everybody laughed, but Gilio thought the joke beyond price, whereas the archivist, who was there at dinner, did not know how to apologize sufficiently. End of chapter 38